And now to introduce our speaker. We're joined today by Dr. Brian Cheesebro, the Oregon Region Medical Director of Environmental Stewardship for Providence Health and Services. Dr. Cheesebro earned his medical degree from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and then went on to do residency training in anesthesiology and perioperative care at University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Cheesebro currently practices anesthesiology with Oregon Anesthesiology Group at Providence Portland Medical Center. And in addition, he serves as the vice chair of the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committee on Environmental Health. He volunteers as a medical advisor for Portland Mountain Rescue in Portland, Oregon. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Cheesebro today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Um, this is a complicated topic uh, to try to cover in, in a single hour, and I'll do my best to try and kind of scratch the surface uh, today with a with more of a high level view. Um, and really, uh, I, I look to discuss the intersections between climate and health, as well as our approach in Providence addressing these issues. And finally, <clears throat> excuse me, finally at the end, uh, I'll introduce a framework and some strategies for clinician engagement and involvement to help build both a health for a better world and a better world for health. So this uh, statement here from the World Health Organization, uh, I think sums up the issue pretty well. Um, climate change is the, is the single biggest threat, health threat facing humanity. And this is where we are. This is not you know, future projection, I think. Any of us in the Northwest over the past couple of years has seen this firsthand. Uh, it's happening now, uh, and it appears to be ramping up. And the health impacts of climate vary. They vary across both geography and across time. And these concepts here that I have listed really help kind of ground uh, our perspective within these dynamic systems uh, that vary over time and space. And Really, the impacts are determined by a combination of exposures uh, to climate and environmental threats, conditions uh, or hazards. And those exposures occur um, on patients, populations, and the health system itself. Um, these exposures kind of intersect with vulnerabilities of each of these groups, and together that determines the impact. Um, adaptation uh, aims to reduce the risk of both exposure and vulnerability. And over the short and medium term um, going forward, really these exposures, vulnerability, um, inherent resi resilience to the current rate of climate change, as well as our ability to adapt um, both in breadth and speed, that's what really determines our health, uh, climate health impacts over the short and midterm. Obviously, over the long term, it's all of those things again, plus. Um, the, the work go under uh, the work we're, we're taking on to mitigate and reduce the primary problem, which are you know the buildup of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, in order to prevent crossing these irreversible climate tipping points. And healthcare within the context of climate of the climate crisis, healthcare really occupies a very unique role, um, and it, it I think of it really as this vicious cycle. Um, this healthcare environment cycle. If we start on the green side, healthcare delivery, you know, that's what we do every day. That's our mission to take care of uh, patients and populations. And we 
we we deliver healthcare. That healthcare inherently has its own emissions burden. We generate a tremendous amount of pollution, which goes out into the environment and leads to illness and injury. Uh, it combines with the societal emissions and pollution. Um, and I'll talk a little bit later about kind of the, the proportion of, of healthcare pollution and emissions within the grander scheme, but all, you know, all of the pollution, all of the emissions um, combine to, to drive illness and injury. And we as healthcare, as an industry, are this uh, anchor network uh, receiving patients who come back to us uh, looking for treatment in response to these impacts generates more healthcare delivery, generates more pollution and emissions, generates more illness, and we get stuck in this cycle. Um, and our goal uh, in healthcare sustainability and in, the, in our environmental stewardship program is to work to break this vicious, uh, unhealthy cycle at each of these points. Each point kind of requires a different kind of pillar of action is kind of what I call them. Um, if we start in the illness and injury, uh, that's that's where we think about adaptation and building resilience in patients, populations, and the health system itself. Um, there's a lot of work that I'll that we'll talk about in a second there. Um, in terms of healthcare delivery, there's a tremendous effort underway to reduce our pollution, to reduce our emissions burden uh, through mitigation. And then finally, you know, when we talk about uh, climate change more broadly. Uh, pollution more broadly. That's where advocacy really comes into play, um, advocating externally um, and internally, but more externally to, to call attention to the health impacts of climate, uh, to the issues related to environmental health, to really spur and lead uh, society as, as, again, as an anchor institution to take action to, to help improve the health of our planet. So we'll start at at, at we will start at adaptation. It's kind of a tongue twister. Um, and this is the intersection between health and the environment. Um, as we've seen over the past several years with, uh, there's some feedback coming. I don't know if you can turn that off. Thank you. Um, over the past several years, even locally or regionally with wildfires, uh, the smoke, the, the extreme heat dome that we saw last year, uh, drought, um, think more broadly across the United States, the excessive rain events in the Southeast, flooding, hurricanes along the Gulf Coast and up the East Coast. I mean, the list just keeps going on and on. And we're experiencing the health impacts of these events uh, today. So we need to consider, again, what, what I was talking about before, the short-term time horizon and these uh, health impacts of climate. And again, as I mentioned before, these impacts are determined by this combination of exposures and vulnerabilities. And walking through from left to right, we start with kind of these primary, kind of sometimes hard to make the link between these big climate drivers and, and health. And this is important to understand not only for ourselves, but when we talk to our patients and our colleagues um, and others in society, this is kind of a good way to lead them through so that they really understand the link between climate and health. Um, and climate drivers lead to um, environmental conditions, which, which, which can generate environmental hazards, which result in, in these detrimental health effects. Um, and, the, and the conditions and hazards, they can either be a primary injury 
um, or they can act as a threat multiplier so that patients with chronic disease or um, other vulnerabilities, um, the, the, the environmental conditions or, or the climate uh, impacts can tip them over and exacerbate their underlying conditions. Um, again, those that suffer the most are the most vulnerable amongst us. Um, I, I personally am pretty deliberate about thinking through carefully vulnerabilities amongst patients, populations in the health system. I've said that a couple of times, I'll say it more, um, because I think the, the approach, uh, the, the assessment of vulnerability amongst those three groups is different. The actions uh, to support resilience amongst those three groups are also different. Um, in, this, in the table below, kind of listed just two examples that kind of highlight this, this concept of driver to condition to hazard to effect. Um, and I also wanted to make the point that there's overlap, just they don't stay on their row, you know, increased temperature, uh, excessive heat, that has, that plays a role in exacerbating drought, exacerbating wildfires. So it actually gets pretty complicated. It's not so clean as just a table with, with straight across rows. It's actually more of a, um, there are a lot of arrows going a lot of different directions, but it does help, I think, to have some framework to start to break apart um, many of these complicated interactions. Again, stepping back uh, to assess overall impacts of just these two, um, looking at some data, these are two that we've experienced um, pretty intensely here in the Northwest. Uh, when assessed globally, um, the particulate air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels uh, is responsible for 8.7 million premature deaths per year. Uh, which is a tremendous number, right? And um, really calls calls attention to the need to address um, to address the burning of fossil fuels as the primary driver of, of so many of these problems. Um, well, other people have looked at more broadly, uh, tried to quantify the impacts of extreme heat, uh, and they've determined that uh, temperature-related uh, mortality cost of carbon, um, which is with extreme heat, is, which is really considered to be the most dangerous environmental hazard. Um, we find that for every roughly 4,500 uh, metric tons of carbon generates one excess uh, death. Um, last summer, obviously, we saw many in that one week of, of the heat, the extreme heat dome event. We saw many people, unfortunately, pass away. Um, and, you know, we're driving it through our through our missions um, with Providence and uh, society as a whole. Just about every level, um, globally, nationally, even locally here in Portland, we see that the environmental determinants of health um, disproportionately impact the poor and the vulnerable. With extreme heat again last year, uh, that came into play with these large urban temperature gradients uh, between neighborhoods resulting in much greater levels of exposure to those living in these urban heat islands. Um, one of our colleagues at Portland State last year during that uh, heat event went around and took very detailed temperature measurements during the during the heat dome um, and generated this map that, that we're looking at here. Um, I found it really remarkable to learn that, you know, the, the temperature gradient between North Portland um, and Irvington, um, which is, you know, less than a mile apart, 
uh, that temperature gradient was about 25 degrees Fahrenheit difference. Um, I don't think it's it will surprise many in the audience to, to also notice in this image. The red temperature. Um, th these urban heat islands are also overlap with with many of the regions that were uh, historically redlined in Portland. Um, and in addition to these direct exposures, the pre-existing health disparities uh, within these communities also contribute to increased vulnerability. Um, again, allowing it extreme heat to act as a threat multiplier and exacerbating these chronic medical conditions. And as I mentioned before, environmental and climate health impacts really vary across geography and time. Not all regions of the country are going to are going to battle wildfires the way we are or the way California is. Um, nor will the continent or the globe um, experience the same environmental conditions, therefore hazards, therefore health effects. Um, nor will the vulnerabilities amongst these different populations and patients be the same. So each region really needs to carefully, carefully consider. Sorry, shot way ahead. Um, needs to carefully consider its own vulnerabilities um, to build resilience to the to what is predicted to be the most severe, most likely threats. Uh, insurance companies are also kind of getting into the mix in this, trying to predict uh, regional climate and environmental risks. It uh, doesn't mean that these are the only risks to consider. Uh, this is a this is an assessment county by county done by Moody's, which is a big insurance company. Um, but these are what through their analysis they felt to be the most severe risks for each of these counties. Um, we're seeing many of these play out today um, and over the past couple of years. I think it's interesting to note for us in Oregon. Um, you know what? While I've talked about our, our experience with extreme heat and wildfires and air quality that at least according to, to Moody's assessment is not what they are predicting to be the greatest uh, environmental or climate related risk to us. It's actually excessive rain, uh, rain events like our, our uh, communities in, in the southeast have been experiencing over the past year. What we've seen in, in Europe and Asia um, that's what's predicted to, to impact us. Um, hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, we'll see. Uh, as a result of these big differences, again, the responses will and should be different, um, you know, in wildfire prone California or Southern Oregon, um, as opposed to the communities across the Gulf Coast uh, as they prepare to, to uh, adapt to her increased severity and frequency of hurricanes. Um, but really, you know, as disparate as those may seem to be, they both fall under this umbrella of climate, health, adaptation, and resilience. So in addition to assessing the risk of the climate drivers and the conditions and the hazards, it's also important to more systematically address vulnerabilities in our, in our again, patients, populations, and health system. Uh, here in Oregon, the Oregon Health Authority uh, assesses climate and health vulnerabilities across multiple factors. You know, they look at age, socioeconomic status, race, race and ethnicity, um, degree of isolation. Uh, we certainly saw last year with with the heat. Uh, those patients who were who really suffered the most were the elderly who lived in isolation. Um, so that's that's something that that's called out specifically. 
the presence of chronic disease, education level, all of those kind of combine to, to give a sense of uh, uh, a community's vulnerability to climate and health. Other states have similar assessment tools, and while, while none of them are really perfect, they do help provide some direction in terms of thinking about the risk uh, to populations. And in terms of patients, we really need clinicians to be thinking along these same lines as you're, as you're meeting with your patients in clinic or in the hospital, preparing them for, for discharge. Uh, think carefully about you know, their vulnerabilities to the environment that they're, that they're either living in or being discharged to. So we have some insight into our national and state vulnerabilities. Um, our next step in, in Providence is to really dig more deeply into our opportunities through more Providence-based assessments into our specific regions, uh, communities, and facilities. Um, we're interested in advancing knowledge um, in this space through research. There's a tremendous amount that we know about climate and health and adaptation and, and tools for building resilience, but I would argue there's even more that we do not know, and uh, this field is in desperate need of uh, active research and, and innovation. For example, uh, as an anesthesiologist uh, two years ago in the during the big fires of, of Labor Day 2020, um, we I very clearly remember standing in the hall at Prague Portland with with smoke visible smoke in the hall wondering with colleagues and, and talking about um, what patients should we postpone? What surgery should we postpone? How do we assess risk in this environment that none of us have ever worked in before? Um, it's We don't have any evidence to help guide us. We did the best that we could, but I think that uh, we really need to think carefully about, about how, to, how to risk assess and optimize in a rapidly changing environment and in ways that, that we that we have not seen before. That's kind of a, a pretty high overview of adaptation and resilience. Um, to direct to assess the impacts of healthcare delivery on climate and the environment, uh, we really need to focus on mitigation of our own emissions and our own pollution um, to really live up to this ethos of first do no harm. Uh, it's not it's not going to be a revelation to revelation to anyone here that uh, U.S. healthcare is enormous, right? It's an enormous industry. It's very resource intense. Shouldn't come as a surprise uh, that the environmental impact of healthcare is also enormous. Um, sadly, here in the United States, our healthcare system emissions and pollution are disproportionately large uh, compared to other nations' health systems. Um, if you look at US healthcare um, as an industry, we generate uh, roughly eight and a half percent of our national greenhouse gas emissions burden. Uh, if you look at healthcare globally, uh, the United States contributes 25% of global healthcare emissions. Uh, interestingly, you know, an assessment of US healthcare pollution on uh, morbidity and mortality is measured by disability adjusted life years found that um, that health impact of our own pollution uh, creates injury on the same order of magnitude as preventable medical errors, which obviously and, and uh, justifiably has has garnered tons of attention from from healthcare. Um, this problem is of equal magnitude, and in my opinion, deserves uh, equal if not more attention. 
in order to really understand um, mitigation and to start kind of unraveling uh, emissions, we need to we need to get some sense about carbon accounting. This is something that I did not learn in medical school or residency. Um, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Um, but there are there are protocols for for assessing and accounting carbon. Uh, the greenhouse gas protocol is an international standard accounting standard, and they really it it divides carbon. Uh, amongst three different scopes. Uh, scope one are carbon emissions that are direct. They're emitted directly from a campus or a facility uh, within healthcare. That means the burning of natural gas for thermal energy. It means uh, inhaled anesthetic emissions. It means uh, emissions from fleet vehicles, uh, refrigerant losses, things like that. Uh, scope two emissions are indirect utility-based emissions uh, largely through procurement of electricity or steam. Um, so for that, uh, it's really about um, how efficiently are we using electricity and what's the what's the energy mix uh, on our uh, on our electrical grid. Scope three is everything else. Um, it's kind of the the catch-all group. Uh, indirect emissions, those are associated with supply chain, transportation, uh, waste management, food and nutrition. It all kind of gets lumped into this into this scope three category. Uh, the figure on the on the right is uh, is a breakdown in the US of national he healthcare emissions by source and scope. You can see that you know roughly 80% of healthcare related emissions lie within scope three. Um, with 20% falling in scopes one and two. It's not so well, I often encounter people who really are focused on um, the emissions generated from our facilities, thinking about lights, thinking about um, windows and insulation and all that. Super important, but uh, it's not all wrapped up in our facilities and uh, clinicians through the through our clinical decision making and our delivery of care uh, we have a huge role to play in addressing this scope three burden of emissions. This is another way of looking at it um, to assess opportunity and uh, to direct effort. This this analysis comes from the UK National Health Service. They're really, you know, in terms of health systems, they are the global leader in working toward uh, net zero healthcare and decarbonization. And here we're looking at, at a projection of their system broken down not necessarily by scopes, uh, but rather by different categories of action and, and accountability. So if you look at purple on the top section, uh, that's really action uh, that's, that's needed by national and international bodies uh, looking at a decarbonization of the grid or um, building, um, improving vehicle uh, efficiencies and, and moving toward uh, electrical EV transportation systems. Uh, whereas green right below that, that's looking at new models of preventative medicine. Um, I'll talk a little bit later about the principles of sustainable uh, healthcare. Uh, blue, uh, you know, I have to kind of point at myself, uh, anesthetics um, and uh, inhalers, the propellants can um, that are within uh, meter dose inhalers are another significant source of uh, healthcare-related greenhouse gas emissions. 
transportation and travel, estates, facilities, and then the bottom is, you know, that's that's largely the supply chain, and that's that's really kind of the holy grail of of scope three mitigation that we're working hard to unravel and and make progress on. So what are we doing in Providence? Um, hopefully you've heard by now that Providence has uh, publicly and formally committed to becoming carbon negative uh, by 2030. This is a pretty aggressive goal. Um, as as Dr. Hoffman says here in this quote, it is the boldest health, it is the boldest climate goal in healthcare in the United States. Uh, we don't take it lightly. Um, it's a lot of work. It's it's very ambitious, um, but we're proud of it and we're committed to it and we're working hard to achieve it. And this kind of support across the entire institution has been really helpful in terms of building the culture that we need to make these advancements in stewardship. And our uh, as a mission as a mission based values based organization, um, our program is really grounded in the Providence mission and values, particularly justice, uh, where we do strive to care wisely for our people, our resources and our earth, and we stand in solidarity with the most vulnerable. You know, it, when you look back at those other slides and see all those different categories and these scopes and you know, different facets of action. Uh, at least for me at the beginning, I found it to be totally overwhelming. And where do you even start? Um, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to wrap your head around what to do. Um, within Providence, we we built this kind of framework that we call the We Act uh, for Environmental Stewardship, and it helps guide our work. Uh, it helps kind of categorize effort and action, and it helps engage others. It's both a mnemonic. Um, so we can remember what categories to address, but it also reminds us what we need to do, which is which is to take action. We estimate that across these five categories, broadly speaking, we're covering just shy of 90% of our uh, Providence emissions. Um, and we're really working uh, in, in waste. We're really thinking about upstream waste reduction as well as downstream waste reduction. It's not it's not just about recycling. Uh, it's more effective to work upstream. Uh, it's called source reduction. Reduce the amount of, of material and resource consumption um, from the get-go. Uh, energy and water, we're looking at the more efficient use of energy and water resources, as well as trying to decrease the carbon intensity of, of those sources. So um, <clears throat> kind of an overarching concept would be use less, and green the rest. And I think that applies to all of these these categories in agriculture and food where we're looking at and, and measuring the carbon intensity of our, the meals that we serve both to patients and in our cafeterias. Um, and we're trying to uh, support more sustainable agricultural choices um, with chemicals. We're looking at uh, trying to change practices to use fewer, less toxic, um, lower carbon emission chemicals um, and in transportation. We're looking at trying to reduce our transportation demand as well as reduce the carbon intensity of, of the forms of travel that we use. So environmental stewardship really, I mean, it touches just about every aspect of healthcare that you can imagine and the scale is is gigantic and 
in order to know what we need to do, we need to make make an assessment and we need, we need to be able to track uh, where we are, where we're going and how we're doing on, on the journey. So we really need, we desperately need data. Uh, so over the past uh, year or so, we've been working really hard uh, with Providence caregivers at the Providence Global Center in uh, India to build a central database of environmental stewardship uh, data um, to track resources to like energy and water, anesthesia, uh, utilization of certain uh, classes of clinical supplies. We're working on pulling food uh, procurement into this scorecard and we're looking at uh, use we're translating it to emissions, and we're also looking at the financial uh, implications of, of these practices. Uh, this tool has been really helpful in directing effort, kind of looking, at developing kind of a heat map, uh, not only in terms of content, but where in Providence do we need to be focusing our efforts? Um, seven states, 53, 54 hospitals, we can't all be everywhere at once, so we're really trying to, to prioritize uh, content and geography in our mitigation work. Of course, it's more complicated than, than an easy to remember uh, mnemonic like we act. Um, and this strategy diagram outlines the work that we're doing, not only across the three pillars on the right hand side, but also it's, it's pointing out the different groups, the action groups that are working on on uh, these topics, as well as key, what we consider key elements for success in working toward this overarching goal that we have in the center there of becoming carbon negative. Um, there's a lot to do. Every time I look at this, my eyes kind of go cross-eyed. Uh, the third pillar is advocacy. Um, and clearly, while healthcare emissions and pollution, um, it's, it's significant without question. Uh, they were part of a much larger problem. We contribute to this global uh, societal problem and to address the overarching issues we need to we need to be uh, working outside of our walls within the uh, societal commons to engage partners um, to continue to to drive down emissions and pollution. So here I'm just kind of highlighting some of our external advocacy that we've done in Providence. Uh, we've been directly advocating for, for climate action at all levels of, of government and organization. Um, globally, uh, Providence was, was on one of the stages at COP26 last fall in, in Glasgow talking about the, the importance of decarbonizing healthcare, uh, the impacts of climate and health. Um, Interestingly, coming out of that meeting, um, out of COP26, there is a, a COP26 health program, which was signed on by roughly 50 countries, including the United States, pledging to work toward decarbonizing healthcare and building resilience into our health systems. Um, federally, uh, the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity uh, recently put, put forth a decarbonization pledge uh, the Providence was one of the first health systems to sign on to. Um, on Thursday, uh, Beth Shank, who's our executive director of environmental stewardship at Providence, is testifying in person in front of the U.S. Uh, House Ways and Means Committee on healthcare decarbonization and the importance of 
of uh, res building resilience into our healthcare systems. Um, people within our program have to have testified in front of state legislatures, both Oregon and Washington. And locally, we're working with um, municipalities, Portland and Seattle in particular, in their work toward um, decarbonizing uh, our cities. So where do clinicians fit into all of this? It's it's the uh, big, as I've mentioned before, it's a, it's a big topic. Clinicians uh, represent the majority of employees uh, or caregivers in healthcare organizations. Here in Providence, it's roughly it's estimated roughly 70, 80 percent of caregivers are clinically uh, are clinicians or patient facing. Uh, we know from survey data that clinicians are engaged around this topic. Um, by and large, we recognize the threat of climate health, uh, climate change on human health today and uh, the risk that it poses going forward. And clinicians are motivated to take action, but there are barriers that we face, that we all face. Um, most significantly, it's a lack of time. Uh, I'm sure everyone here feels time pressure. Um, and it's a lack of, of detailed or specific knowledge about what to do. Um, if, if any of you are, are had training like mine, this was never discussed in my medical school training or residency training. Um, I didn't learn. I, this is this is not something that that is kind of ingrained in, into healthcare education or, or operations yet. Hopefully that changes, um, but that that is also a significant barrier. So for clinicians who are busy, it, I think it helps to have a framework uh, to help to think through these issues and opportunities to, to guide engagement and action. Um, as an anesthesiologist, I do need, I, I really like these kind of frameworks as opposed to memorizing long lists of, of differential diagnoses. Um, so this I find helpful. Uh, hopefully it, it's helpful for you. Um, so across the top, the columns are the pillars that we talked about. It's mitigation, it's adaptation, it's advocacy. And the rows highlight different strategies that I think are, are particularly applicable to, to clinician action. So for people who are, who are interested in quality or operations or facilitating best practice, um, that's row number one. Uh, research and innovation, as I said before, there's a lot we know, there's more that we don't know. And then finally, uh, there are a lot of really outstanding uh, clinician educators, both internally within healthcare and then as advocates for, for public health uh, beyond the walls of, of our hospitals and clinics. Um, we really need clinician involvement there as well. At the intersection between the columns and the rows, that's where you fill in the tactics or the projects specific to your specialty or your practice. You know, the things that I have listed here in, in this example are, are more perioperative, more anesthesiology uh, driven, um, but I would encourage you to uh, think carefully, go through this exercise and see what you come up with. Um, some, some people will be drawn more to quality, some will be drawn to research, um, some advocacy, some uh, to education, but we really need clinicians engaged in all of these boxes. Um, and with limited time, I think we should kind of give ourselves permission to not feel like we have to do everything. Um, but if you can carve out one of these one of these lines in one of these boxes and and uh, work on that, 
uh, you will be doing us all uh, a service. So once you have a target for for your efforts, how do we how can we start thinking about accelerating a transformation? Um, in our work to date, we found that these three implement implementation strategies uh, have been particularly effective in engaging clinicians um, and have resulted in significant environmental gains. Uh, quality improvement programs, process, re-engineering, and decision support tools. Um, clearly, there's a lot of crossover between the three and they should be used together. Um, but of the three, I'll really, uh, reveal my bias here, I guess. I think quality improvement is particularly relevant um, and, a, and an appropriate lens um, through which to advance clinical environmental stewardship across all those three pillars. Um, of adaptation, mitigation, and advocacy. And for quality, uh, it's often considered within the context of uh, value. We've all heard the term value-based healthcare. Uh, most administrators are even familiar with that. Um, I, I choose to think of it as value-based decarbonization. Um, in the simplest terms, value is, you know, quality divided by cost. Um, and the important thing, I think, when when designing and implementing a quality improvement project is carefully and very deliberately doing your best to assess and consider and assess all the aspects of quality and cost, not just the one that matters the most to you. I mean, clearly in my role, um, I'm going to prioritize the reduction of environmental costs. That's what's going to get me out of bed in the morning. That's what's going to get me to the table to, to have a discussion. Um, but I'm not so naive to think that everybody that I encounter is going to share that same passion or priority. So within our program, we try to do our very best to, to assess each of these facets because you never know who's going to be in your audience and what their priority is going to be. But if you present um, your your proposed change um, and grounded in a in this complete assessment, then you'll re significantly reduce barriers um, and you'll create this um, this group of advocates that really want to move along with you. Um, I think clinicians uh, are are uniquely suited to to inform and assess these facets of quality. Certainly within healthcare sustainability, uh, historically, it's really been focused on the facilities, on the money, on, um, on energy, because most of those sustainability directors are not clinical and they do, they do not feel comfortable wading into aspects of patient safety, clinical efficacy, clinical efficiencies, health equity, uh, patient-centered care, uh, resilience they're more willing to talk about, um, and compliance is regulatory compliance. We want to make sure that we don't go sideways with with regulators with with change with the transfer transformational changes that 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 we propose. So, in designing a strong uh, strong environmental stewardship initiatives, um, I think it's helpful to to think about um, these the rule of fours. Um, the SUSQI program from the Center of Sustainable Healthcare in the UK really grounds itself in these four principles of sustainable practice. <clears throat> I think it's an excellent 
resource to learn more about sustainable clinical care. Uh, if you haven't looked at it um, and you're interested, you absolutely should. Uh, I, I find it interesting and, and significant that uh, that the framework starts upstream. I think that's very intentional. Prevention um, is the most effective means to reducing our healthcare emissions, our clinical healthcare emissions. If we can keep a patient from coming into this, into the hospital, which is consumes so many resources, not only are we keeping them healthy, we're reducing our emissions burden of, of the system itself as well. Uh, patient empowerment and self-care, making sure that they understand how to take care of themselves um, at home, making sure that they're using their medications efficiently and appropriately. Uh, lean service delivery is, is really working um, on efficiency. Um, we have a lot of, we get a lot of uh, co collaboration and cooperation with, with uh, the teams working on value analysis uh, within Providence. They're really focused on efficiency in terms of financial cost reduction. We're interested in looking at efficiency for en environmental emissions and pollution reduction. It's a really powerful synergy uh, to, to work on the efficiency of care. And then finally, we're working hard to understand um, lower carbon clinical alternatives uh, within different facets of care. And oh, that circle of feedback is coming back, if you could turn that off. Um, and I think a good example there is, is with anesthesia. Uh, we have several different an inhaled anesthetics available for clinical use. They, are, they differ drastically in terms of their greenhouse gas uh, potency. And uh, we've, we've led a, a very effective clinical quality improvement project to direct clinicians' uh, behaviors toward the lower carbon alternatives. Um, and as we learn more about, um, as we get better about the carbon accounting of clinical practice, uh, we're able to make more and more recommendations um, to lower carbon alternatives couched in uh, in the overarching context of, of always always moving toward high value care. We don't want to propose something that's going to undermine safety, undermine efficacy. Um, so that's again why it's so important to have clinician voices at the table when when we're thinking through these problems. In terms of implementation, the other group of four. Um, this is just more my putting on my quality improvement hat, I guess, but I found these four components of implementation to be particularly uh, effective uh, and important when when implementing a project. Grounding grounding the the, the change in uh, true evidence based rationale uh, really serves to inspire clinicians to to come on board. Within environmental stewardship, I would say kind of the, um, the, um, the standard of evidence is uh, life cycle assessments of alternatives. Um, and that's really, as, as this field expands, the, the number and breadth of life cycle assessments specific to healthcare is only getting larger. But in, that's what you really need to unravel this, um, the, the fourth, line of sustainable practice of these lower carbon alternatives. You really need someone to go through the process of understanding well, what are the emissions associated with 
resource extraction, with manufacturing, with transport, with use, uh, with disposal, and really considering emissions over the entire life cycle uh, so that we make sure that the, the choices that we make are truly achieving the goal that we want of, of overall emissions reductions. Um, again, you know, any quality improvement project, it's really important that it's iterative. You learn so much with every cycle uh, run through the quality pro process. Um, I spoke before about the importance of data, um, continuous data collection to, to inform uh, the next iterations is absolutely critical. Um, feeding that data forward to, to the clinicians you're working with to, to continue to inspire um, engagement is, is also really important. And then finally, um, this is something that I've been doing more lately in, in this role, is thinking from the very beginning about how do we scale this quickly, right? It's one thing to do a quality improvement project in your clinic or at Providence Portland um, and it's great and it, it improves the care of, of those uh, those locations but how do we get this spread quickly right how do we scale this up uh, very quickly and I think there are, there are certainly ways to do that um, it does require some um, careful consideration about how do you normalize your measurement of, of, of your initiative across practices that are very different from each other. Um, you know, the, the practice at at Seaside Hospital is very different than the practices at, at St. Vincent. Um, how do we how do we put them on some kind of normalized scale so that we can understand um, and learn from each other? I know that was a lot to cover um, and I apologize that maybe it seems like we were skimming. We were skimming. Um, any of these topics is is certainly worthy of uh, an hour in and of itself. Um, that said, I hope you leave today with at least these um, broad take home points. Uh, number one, that healthcare is is this vicious cycle uh, in the climate crisis and associated health impacts where we serve both as a safety net to those suffering the impacts as well as um, we need to take responsibility as significant contributors to the problem itself. Um, action is needed across several fronts, um, mitigation, adaptation and advocacy. And then finally, I, I hope that, that you leave here um, with the appreciation that, that clinicians do have a crucial role to play um, as, as we approach these problems going forward. Uh, normally in Providence, we offer reflections at the beginning, um, but I'd like to leave with a, with this reflection here. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's really um, acknowledging this gap that exists between knowledge and implementation. We know um, it takes on average 17 years between uh, generation of evidence in medicine and widespread adoption of practice. Um, we don't have 17 years. Um, to go through that with each of these. Um, we, we need uh, action. And Leonardo says, I've been impressed with the urgency of doing. Knowing is not enough. We must apply. Being willing is not enough. We must do. So with that, I'll leave uh, this contact info. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or comments or suggestions. 
um, really I'd love to hear from from you all about uh, stewardship opportunities that you see in your practices. Um, I always feel like I learn way more than I than I give. Um, and finally, thanks for the invitation to be here. Uh, it's really an honor and a privilege. Um, with that, I'm happy to take any questions that you have. Pressures. Yes. Thank you. Um, so the question for those who didn't hear it was how is. And please tell me if I'm interpreting this properly. Um, how does environmental stewardship and, and the work um, underway to reduce emissions? How is that? How is that in itself sustainable? Given the financial pressures that we're all seeing in Providence and healthcare in general. Did I sum that up? Sounds OK. Um, that's a very good question, um, and it's something that that we worry about a lot. Um, but fortunately, there are so many examples where, again, improving the efficiency improves financial stewardship, improves environmental stewardship too. Um, not all, not every environmental initiative is going to save us money. There are absolutely things that are going to cost us money. Um, but we're within our program, we do have a, a tracking mechanism so that we are, again, we're tracking use, emissions, and cost. So we know how much money we're saving the system. We know how much money we're costing the system. And we're making sure that that calculus makes sense. And we're making sure that our leaders know um, the, the financial benefit of our program uh, to, to kind of help them uh, reassure them that, that what we're doing is not undermining the financial solvency of, of the organization. Even, even uh, but I think it's important to also appreciate that the work exists grounded in the values of Providence. It is really grounded in justice. It, I can't tell you how powerful that is for our leaders. Um, it doesn't, um, it opens a lot of doors that that we that we have this mission. I feel very fortunate to be working on this topic within an organization that that really holds onto its mission and values the way Providence does, because it does um, it does relieve some of that pressure from us. Not completely, 
Um, and we wouldn't be good stewards in the broader sense if, if we didn't take account financial accounting of what we're doing as well. Um, but I think our, you know, our, our grounding in justice and, and the acknowledgement and understanding amongst our leaders that this is a health issue, that we will not, Providence will not survive if we don't address this problem. If we don't address the resilience of our infrastructure to climate, we will shut down. Um, very interesting story last year uh, during the heat dome, St. Vincent was this close to shutting during that event. Talking to Andy Mason, the facility director here, uh, about you know the operational gymnastics that they had to do to keep this building open, not only during the event itself, but for 10 days after the event. It was incredibly challenging for them to manage the internal environment of St. Vincent. There was so much thermal energy that had been absorbed into the physical structure of this building during the heat dome itself, that for 10 days afterward, as that thermal energy was moving back down its gradient, it was doing it in very unpredictable ways um, and, and ways that were very difficult for them to manage temperature, humidity, and important pressure gradients within the building. Um, he had also mentioned to me that <clears throat> without, the, without the remodel, the exterior remodel that had been done, um, he said there's no way they, that the building would have made it through that event. Without the, without the new reflective skin, without the windows, like they, they wouldn't have made it through. Our buildings were not designed for that kind of environmental stress, um, but it's gonna ha it happened, it's gonna keep happening. And uh, I think Providence overall recognizes the importance of building resilience amongst the system itself, amongst the populations we serve and the patients we care for. Very helpful. Thank you for your good work. <laughs> I was really inspired by the anesthesia example, and I started wondering, did the British Medical Society or some other group generate like a top five, kind of like the Choosing Wisely campaign around finances? Is there a top five for us as internists? One that comes to mind is just, are the powdered inhalers better than the ones that are meter dose? And if so, you know, are there other projects that are top of mind for you or that a society has put forward? Sure. So the the inhalers is a good example. I mean, if you really think about um, what we have to take ownership of, we we it's I think it's really important that we take ownership of the emissions that are unique to healthcare. Right. We're working on energy efficiency, we're working on transportation. Um, fortunately, other people are working on that too. We're going to benefit from this cross industry collaboration on those emissions. So there's a lot of work for us to do, but other people are helping us. With healthcare, with unique sources of healthcare emissions, we have to own them. We have to, we have to take the lead. We have to figure out the solution. Um, anesthesia is one that we understand now, right? We understand how to mitigate those sources of emissions. Um, of, of those two, there are two broad classes of anesthesia emissions. They're the more potent volatile anesthesia, more potent volatile inhaled anesthetics, and then there's nitrous oxide, uh, which is used not only in anesthesia, but it's used in 
pediatric pediatric sedation. It's used as a um, refrigerant in cryosurgery in the cath lab and the cardiac uh, surgery OR. Um, we understand how to mitigate that source as well, the nitrous source and the, the volatile anesthetic source. Um, at St. Vincent, again, since I'm standing here, um, both those sources have been reduced by over 95% from our baseline that we had in 2016 and 2019. So nearly 100% mitigation of those two sources that nobody else is going to help us figure out how to do. So that's that's a win, right? For internists, I would say the propellants is, those are significant. It kind of, when I first was learning about that, it, it seemed kind of hard to believe. I mean, those, those MDIs are so small. How could that be a problem? But when you multiply it out over the millions and millions of prescriptions per year, and you realize that the global warming potential of those propellants is many thousand times greater than carbon dioxide, it is a problem. Uh, the NHS estimates that that the propellants from inhalers comprise roughly 5% of their entire industry's uh, emissions. It's complicated. I mean, the anesthesia story is pretty straightforward. There are only three drugs. You know, it's pretty easy to measure. Inhaled medications is hundreds of drugs. It's very, and uh, with anesthesia, the clinical differences are very small. With inhaled medications, it's much more complicated, right? The, the drugs themselves are different. Uh, the diseases you're treating are different. Mild asthma is treated different than severe asthma is treated differently than moderate COPD, right? So for that, for that example, again, having clinicians who are experienced in, in the literature and treating patients, really that perspective needs to come into play in terms of making uh, recommendations to drive toward higher value care so that we don't undermine clinical efficacy of our treatments, but that we do we are mindful of the environmental emissions of these inhalers. Um, some of the work that we've done here in Providence is um, it was really kind of brutal, but going through the entire United States formulary, looking at every single formulation of every single inhaled medication, evaluating the type and the amount of propellant in each device um, and translating it to emissions per treatment day, which I think is the most appropriate normalizer. You know, some, some medications you give one puff twice a day, some are two puffs three times a day, right? So you can't, you can't just compare to device to device. You have to say, well, for the treatment of mild, moderate asthma, if I use this, it's this many emissions per treatment day, if I use this, it's, it's different. Um, Without question, the dry powdered inhalers are better from an emissions perspective. Um, I'd be happy to, to share with you. I've done an assessment of the Providence uh, inhaler footprint. And so I know what drugs are driving our, our emissions related to that. It's the short acting beta agonist, albuterol, and it's <clears throat> um, the combination therapies, inhaled corticosteroids and long acting beta agonists, particularly Simbicort. Simbicort, the propellant in Simbicort is uh, the global warming potential. Global warming potential of that propellant is roughly 
3,000 times higher than CO2. Um, yeah. And that, uh, interestingly, not just to kind of climb up on that soapbox for a second, um, it's interesting to know also that the, the data looking at, um, at the use of Simbiquart, those trials all use dry powdered inhalers, right? Dry powdered inhalers for Simbiquart are not available in the United States. It's only available as an MDI. Uh, so in speaking about advocacy, one of the things that we're pushing on the FDA is to get the dry powdered Simbiquart into the United States. So we're trying to do that so that we can truly follow the evidence and we can uh, reduce um, the emissions associated with that treatment. With short-acting beta agonists, the formulations are different. If you don't do that assessment of the formulary, the point of, uh, we found that depending on what brand of albuterol you buy, the emissions vary by a factor of three to three to four. Right? They don't all have the same amount of pound. They're delivering the same dose of medicine. They have the same number of actuations, four times different emissions. And you guys don't know that, but yeah. you should. So resumes, I want to call out that we're at time and just want to draw in one question from the audience online for your repeat and then sure. address briefly. Um, is Providence pursuing solar energy production? Seems like there are a lot of rooftop real estate on our hospitals and clinics for solar panels. <laughs> sure. So um, the question was, is Providence pursuing uh, solar installations and renew direct uh, renewable energy installations on our campuses? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is we don't have enough real estate for that to be a linchpin solution to our energy problem. Um, our energy com consumption is enormous. We cannot generate enough of our own renewable energy to, to make that up. Um, we are aggressively looking at partnering with utility providers to um, procure renewable energy um, to, to cover our consumption. Uh, we prioritize projects that have what we call additionality, meaning that we're not just going out to the market and buying, um, I mean, we are doing this too, but we aren't relying just on what's already available in the market, right? That's That indirectly improves the grid. We're looking at more direct improvements to the grid, expanding the capacity of the grid for renewable energy by partnering with um, utility providers and others to um, build additional installations. While maybe not on our campuses, um, certainly within the region is our priority or the country is our next priority. So working on it, that's, that's pretty complicated. Um, but, you know, several of our campuses do have um, renewable energy. Centralia Hospital in Washington has the largest solar array of, of any hospital in Washington. So it is, we are putting effort into it, but we're not relying upon that as, as the linchpin to our uh, energy problem. I suspect we better let you go. Thank you very much. <laughs>